Good day. Welcome to your favorite place, the Trendy Place. And this is the Trend Podcast with Justin A. Williams. And I, along with my co-host, Tex Ritter, am here to bring you awesome content from all across the spectrum that is meant to inform, excite, and most of all, keep you trendy. If you like a podcast where the unexpected should be expected, then the Trend is the podcast for you. We have a great show for you today. Thank you for joining us. We are better when we trend together. Just as a disclaimer, the views expressed today do not reflect the views of New York Trend Media. Guests are free to speak their minds unfiltered and uncensored. We are here as a place of dialogue, no more and no less. We have a great guest on today and returning after a sabbatical is Tex Ritter. How's it going, co-host? What's going on, man? How you doing, Justin? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm really excited about our guest today. Yeah, I have I have a lot of uh, questions for this. I see that every week. I don't know if the audience knows this. I write a script, and you know I fill it with like maybe four or five questions. And now I woke up today, and there was like ten, twenty more. Just it's just it's just filled with it, it just it's just inquisitiveness. I say I say you're percolating today, Tex, with the, politics, <laughs> with, the with with our political guests. I'm I'm percolating all the time, man. I can't. I'm a percolator. <laughs> watch, watch out for the percolators. Yes, yes. But to introduce him, this is Atiba Madyun. He's a political analyst, author, and former deputy executive director of the National Black Caucus of State Legislators. Atiba Madyun is talking mostly about the systemic racial inequalities that continue and inequities that continue to plague this nation and the impeachment trial challenges of the past year. Atiba has been featured in The Hill. Financial Times, and the Boston Globe. As a Democratic strategist who helped elect Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock in Georgia, which was a big win, a Washington insider, and a president of political party U.S., Mad Mr. Madyun is the expert of experts. And now we'll kick it to our guest. How's it going today? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? And thank you all for having me. Of course. Thanks for stopping by. I'm going to make one quick correction, though. Um, it's party politics, U.S. Oh, okay. Well, thank you for that. Thank get, you for putting get, that. Get it right. Get it right, Justin. You know, I'm Damn not doing my job. Honestly, <laughs> I, I, I should be fired. Or at least docked in pay or something. Fine. I think sometimes people see it and they're like, I can't say party politics. Really? They, they started a company called party politics, but we did. And um, the tagline for it is we put the party, like the fun, before the politics. That's how we attract people and then we get to collect data. Okay, well, you and I should talk after the show because that sounds like something I want to be involved in. All right. that, is, that is great. You know, I think I think what's going on in our world of politics, as somebody who went to school for politics, is that I, what I learned in school is is not any near as I guess just tragic as what transpired, perhaps this past January with the attack on the Capitol. And I just wanted to start off getting your opinions on that and the ramifications for our democracy. You know, you're, you're someone who is, who knows so much about politics and what's going on that that had to have been a shock for you, or maybe it wasn't a shock. The insurrection or the, the, insur <laughs> the insurrection. Yes. So leading up to that, I have a number of people um, who are in the national security um, platform of our country who, um, I won't say loosely, but they kept, they kept um, 
telling me at the team that there's something going on, there's a lot of chatter. Um, and what, also what I felt that they were telling me was based on what they were seeing from social media. And people kept, so a friend of mine, Jamie, kept telling me um, that something about um, the insurrection clause. And she kept saying, I keep feeling like Trump is going uh, to uh, invoke the insurrection clause. And, and part of me kept saying, we're getting close to the election. We, um, at that point, we were still waiting um, to do the special election in Georgia. We were uh, just out of winning a national election with President Biden. We had just seen historic numbers. We had been hearing for four years that there was a civil war happening. So the day that it happened, I was not in my television, but my phone kept going off. And when I got home and I turned the television on, I couldn't believe my eyes. And then I couldn't stop watching the television. So I think I, like many people around the country who were fixated on television, couldn't believe, one, that our security uh, network that's in D.C., we mean, we have Secret Service, Park Police, Metropolitan uh, Police, uh, just so many different departments. I think at least 14 or 15 different pieces of, 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 uh, of police. To have seen that all happening, it was um, scary to say the least, but it was like, really? And then at first I kept thinking, this can't happen, this is America. And then I kept thinking to myself, I don't know if you all remember, um, but as a, for me as a kid, Don King, was a boxing promoter. He used to always say, only in America. And that's what I saw, you know, watching that. I was like, only in America would you see something like that um, happen. Mm -hmm. That's interesting you put it that way. I mean, a lot of people, when they say only in America, they usually mean something referring to the American dream, right? They'll say, only in America is my story possible. But then again, you have this huge populist reaction to... Uh, something that Trump says and he turns into oh, it's almost like an, uh, an autocrat galvanizing the military, a militia force. And, you know, I start off with that question about the insurrection because I wanted to get everyone's opinion on the last four years politically. I want to preface that by saying we're not saying that this is a show that is only for Democrats and that it's not for Republicans. That is not anywhere what the show is about. But what we are saying is that I think that the last four years revealed that there is a new divide in this country that goes beyond just Democrat and Republican. It's, 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 it's based off race. It's based a lot of times off religion. A lot of times it's based off of socioeconomics. But we got to remember that Trump was running as an anti-Republican in a lot of ways. And the Republicans just kind of latched onto him. But the last four years politically, I just want to get everyone's opinion on what do you think they revealed to us? What do you think they showed us? And and and, and how would you grade it? You want me to take um, – sure. the last four years is, a, is an F plus or F minus. Um, there are a number of things that kind of come into play with this. So the first part of it is we lost an election in 2016 because people didn't come out and vote. You know, 52 or 53% of the, the electorate came out and voted. We saw those numbers skyrocket in 2020. So we see what happens when we come out and vote. And elections have consequences. 
So what we see happening now around the country, when I'm doing a lot of these interviews, I'm being asked questions about the filibuster, I'm being asked questions about what's going on with Georgia election laws and the states. Republicans, of which I was a registered Republican until the former president was elected. And then I was like, I can't do this anymore. Um, but what we see happening in the states is a byproduct of what happens when people don't vote. Elections have consequences. We see Biden win. We saw Reverend Warnock, Senator Warnock, and Senator Ossoff win in Georgia. We see what happens when people vote. The elections have consequences. So Republicans have control now of the of sixty six of ninety nine houses in this in the states. So I think Maine or Cameron, which state? There's one that only has one one house. All the other ones have two: a house and a senate. And so what we're seeing right now is a byproduct of what happens when you don't vote and when you do vote. And the, I, I, I'm very discouraged right now. I'm basically taking it upon myself with my small part of this democracy to do what I can to do what we did in 2020. And that is inspire and excite and unite people around the idea that voting really matters. We had a campaign that was called 2020 Fucking Matters. And we're going to bring that back and it's going to be midterms fucking matters. Because it, it's, it's the shock value of it is important, but the fact of it is that we gotta have messages of hope and get people to remember. As Biden said, this is not who we are after the insurrection. I disagree with him a hundred percent. This is who we are. So you know, just like an alcoholic goes to AA and they have to um, say, start over. I'm an alcoholic. Right. We have to say we have a problem here, and it's racism. It's our number one national security threat, racism, xenophobia, um, sexism, all of it blended into a form of fascism. And we have to accept the fact that we have a problem, but we also have to accept the fact that we all play a part in how we fix the problem. Yeah, I agree. Playing a part is, is a big thing. I mean, I think when, when George Floyd uh, got murdered and, you know, with everybody being home and was able to actually, I guess, have empathy what was going on to a particular uh, people that they didn't really pay attention to. Um, it opened their eyes and, you know, we've seen a lot of white people, outside, a, a bunch of different ethnicities marching outside with um, quote unquote minorities. Um, I, I don't like protests. I don't think that they actually do anything. We saw, we saw a huge amount of people get together from different ethnicity groups and different um economic groups. And I, I feel like we were just running around the street chanting things um, to just go to your point. Like we have to find solutions and, and talk more to each other. And the whole divide of if you're this color or have this amount of money, or if you're this religion, whatever background, that's what's keeping these businesses running. And that's, that's where we keep on failing at and not being able to move forward and are always able to be swindled because if somebody talks to us that uh, validates our opinion, we automatically clinch to them um, and, instead of, you know, actually researching what this person is about and what policies they're actually trying to evoke. Well, I used to say the same thing you said about protests. I'm not big about marching. You know, I've seen how we've done that, and I think people, um, just like in sports, if you keep running the same play, people figure out how to stop it. Right. But yeah. I do think that protests and marches do have a place, and I, I say it from the standpoint that they, they're unifying 
things, and they help to elevate and, 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 and um, amplify our voices. What I do think that we need after the marches and the protests, I mean, I remember being at the Women's March a few years ago and some other protests over the years, and what often happens is people get to that so-called finish line, okay, we're at, here we have the Capitol, here we have the White House, what's next? And so it has to be like that, that, that piece, it can't just be, we just got to march, we're not going to just protest. It has to be a call to action. People are looking for that call to action. Something that's gonna, and so when we look at, for instance, Georgia, while we haven't necessarily seen protests, what we have seen is people protesting the idea that these voter laws are, are, are there, and we know that they are to suppress the vote. And some of the media interviews that I've been doing, I've had reporters say, um, the voter rolls, and I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, just say it. It's, it's purging voters from the voter roll. Don't just say voter rolls and, and then just leave it at that. And their thing back to me has been, well, you know, there are people that don't like that kind of language. Good. That's why you use that language. Mm -hmm. And that's why protest and marching is important for us to keep the attention and the focus that we're not going to let you derail what our message is. Um, but I do. But Tess, I, I completely understand. I mean, I, I, I think... Um, and I would say to your generation coming for a little bit further after mine that we're tired of just the lip talk. We want to see like action. We want to see, you know, and me personally, I'm like, you know what? If Delta Airlines doesn't come out and say that they're against that voter law, I have no problem with boycotting um, Delta Airlines. Mm -hmm. um, the other side, though, remember, it says you keep playing the same play again, it's caught up, and it's also because you see. Uh, the former president and his minions saying, "Well, oh, we're gonna um, we're gonna boycott baseball." Well, go ahead and boycott baseball. We're not in stadiums, but you know the fact that the base that Major League Baseball took the All Star Game out of Georgia is huge, and I think a lot of that is because there are so many voices of protest that are that are out there. Do you support that move? Do you yes. support the move moving out? Do you, do you think? There's something to the counter argument when people say, oh, but what about all the black businesses that were now kind of getting shafted by the move of baseball moving out of the All-Star game there? Yeah, well, what about the black businesses that if they continue going on and suppressing the vote are going to a long time down the road end up derailing them from their opportunities to be able to be in business itself? So sometimes you have to, I, like, for instance, I'm big about um, working out and practicing yoga and Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, ride my bike. I tell my friends I, I, I make that investment on the front end because you know paying for a trainer doing all the stuff that I do or, or eating the way I do is is expensive. But I do mm -hmm. what I do on the front end because I'm either going to pay for it on the front end or the back end, mm -hmm. and that's where I, where I think we have to pay for this right now on the front end because otherwise okay. we're going to be impacted by it on the back end. So you, so the pain that's being caused by MLB inflicted upon. Georgia in general is worth it to raise awareness for uh, the the new Georgia reforms. And, and particularly because of those, what do you two think about those Georgia reforms? I've heard a lot of different perspectives. You know, I've been I've been flipping through channels and at first I got the, the very liberal opinion, which was this is obviously racist and um, this is disenfranchisement. But if, if if it's so obviously that, how is it that conservatives have had the audacity to even defend it if, if it's so obviously racist? Is there something that 
they're clearly missing about it. Maybe we could uh, educate my audience, our audience, about what exactly is in that before. You got to educate me too, because um, I'm not aware of it. I hate, the, I hate the term conservative. Okay. Uh, even when I was a Republican, I was always considered myself a moderate because I voted for both Democrat and Republican. I would never ever vote straight ticket unless there's. I mean, when I say never ever. You know, I, I definitely research the candidates that are on the ballot. Um, two, Republicans have hijacked this this word integrity. So they're using the word voter integrity to mm-hmm. along the lines of voter suppression. Mm-hmm. You use the term when we first when you started your show about inequality and inequity. I prefer to use the word inequity because. Um, and I think it's, it, what we're trying to do is come up with equitable solutions. And so when you look at what the Republicans have offered in Georgia, you look at what they did in Texas, we know that they are specifically targeting, for instance, in Georgia, Fulton County, majority black district. Why are they targeting them? Why are they saying things like you can't get out water to people who are standing in line for a long time? Why are you targeting and saying that we live in a, we, we supposedly live in a democracy but you want to close precincts early. You want to limit the number of precincts that are there. You want to take away the opportunity to be able to mail in ballots, and yet we're still in a pandemic. You want to um, take away uh, the number of uh, drop-off boxes. What you're doing is not voter integrity. What you're doing is suppressing votes. And Democrats would be good to come back with a message to really counter that argument, but they're not. So. Again, it has to be people like us who come back and continue to say, this is not about voter integrity. This is about destroying the fabric of what is supposed to be a democracy. And so when you see what's going on in the Republican Party in 21 states, is them recognizing they can't win with the rules that were already established. So they have to change the rules. Do you think this is the end of the Republican Party? Do you think that in some way they're... They're creating their own demise by not instead of instead of saying let's adjust and let's expand and 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 incorporate the desires of black and brown people. They're denying those desires. Inevitably, they're gonna aren't they gonna run out of the capacity to compete with a, another party that says no? We we are gonna accommodate to those values. You know. Um... The guy gets Gates gets to the, the Republican who's Matt Gates. Yeah, yeah. So he's been brought up on charges of uh, sex trafficking of uh, child sex trafficking. Yeah, sex, sex trafficking, and so what happens in the light? It happens in the dark. Comes out in the light. So people like Matt were the people who. Two, three hundred years ago, were raping my great, great, great grandparents, grandmothers. All right, and they were taking them when they were 16, 17 years old. Mm-hmm. So it's in their DNA. So all you stuff that you see is coming out now in the light, and it's coming out because they're trying to do it with their own race, and it's coming out. I was saying earlier today, your issues are in your tissues. <laughs> And it's there. It's the fabric of all this stuff from slavery that people have tried to like uh, try to cover up. Oh, you know, get over this. We're not the ones who got a problem getting over it. You are still not trying to get over it because you're still wanting to 
take women's, take women's bodies, do what it is that you want to do, get people to have to work for you at a minimum wage and, and um, not pay them so that you can have more money for yourself. So then you end up with these big yachts and planes and whatever. You're still trying to have fun. And at the same time, you're still holding your knee to the neck of all of us in order for you to get it. And then you change the rules and the laws in order so you can continue playing on the playground your way and to exclude other people from being able to play with you. That's what this is. And so we gotta be able to just call it out what it is. Racism, sexism, all that, it's just about some, some poor white boys who wanna keep playing their game so they can be rich and make sure that nobody else is able to compete with them because they know on a level playing field, on an equitable playing field, they can't compete. It's just that plain sense. Well, you're definitely dropping some real knowledge right there. <laughs> uh, just for our audience to, to know, the difference between inequity and inequality. So if um, equal, so you take, say for instance, there's a big fence and there's a person who's tall. Like how tall are you? 6'2". Okay, I'm like 5'10". So you're four inches taller than me, right? Right. So there's a tall fence you can't see over that fence, but we both have a box that we can stand in on that's equal. Mm-hmm. And we both stand on it. Your four inches more than me is going to probably allow you to see above mm-hmm. and better across that fence, right? Of that's course. Equal. That's equal. But mm-hmm. it's not equitable. Right. It's not, compensating. Not, it's not compensating for the vast difference between the heights. Yeah. That's so I'm just saying that as like a picture part. That's what we're looking at. So like, you know, when we look at, I work in, um, I, I do lobbying and public affairs in the healthcare field. I'm often on calls about the inequities of the healthcare system. The inequities of the healthcare system are that some people might, for instance, have a rare disease and go to get, get care who's, who are white, who may be wealthy. They go to their doctor, and their doctor is going to prescribe them certain things, and some of the treatments might cost $50,000, $100,000. Black person goes, doctor looks at them and determines, without asking, that they don't have the means in order to be able to pay that, so they give them another option. And that option isn't the same as it. So the white person who's gone may end up with a better treatment option because of the money that they have that ends up prolonging their life, while the black person is just given something to either manage the disease or that at worst, manage the pain until they're dead. Not trying to like prolong their life. That's an act. Which is why everybody's weary, you know, about even this vaccine because they already don't trust the health system. You're, you're right. There are a lot of people that are um, weary of the, of the vaccine. A lot of the work that I've been doing over the last few months has been working with communities to, with the hopes of trying to help people uh, to answer their questions about it, to how to allay some of their fears and concerns about it. But, you know, some of the questions and things that I hear from people are, are, are warranted, and I, and I understand it. When you think about um, Harriet Lex, you know, the fact that they took her uh, her DNA and were able to solve all of these different cancers, but they never told her or her family they made billions of dollars off of that. Mm-hmm. that or look at the Tuskegee um, uh, experiment with rat syphilis. Um, you know, and you go back to slavery. Um, we've always been the experiment. You know, like what happens if you put the slaves in the field and you beat them and you whip them 
and you um, give them the, 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 the least amount of things, the worst clothes, the worst food, etc. what will they do? We've always been the experiment. Even like you look at um, uh, uh, low-income neighborhoods today, people often use the term gentrification, but what happened? How did that, that happen? Well, they put us, say, use the same ideology of slavery, put them in like these little shanties, don't give them much, don't give them much opportunity, don't give them an education, what are they going to do? They're going to beat each other up, they're going to fight each other, they're going to, and they will come in and we'll snatch it away from them. And we'll promise them something better, knowing that they are not going to do that. It's, it, we're seeing the same thing, you know, that keeps happening over and over again. It still keeps going back to inequity, not necessarily, and I understand the term inequality, but I think that the better term for me to use it is inequity. Do you think the inequity issue can apply also to um, gun control as well? Depends on what you mean. I mean, there are guns like prolifically throughout. Look at what's going on in Chicago. A 13-year-old kid was killed the other day. He's running right. and he had a gun. He was shooting off the gun. You know, where, where, where's the inequity of that? Is the inequity because, you know, why was a 13-year-old kid out at 2 o'clock in the morning with a gun right. Right. shooting at you? Um, the inequity, I think, may be in terms of what creates the conditions that put people in that situation. Um, but the inequities around gun control, if I was to say, what are the inequities, if, if any, around there, it's more so the fact that there are so many laws that are in place that allow people to have a gun or to transfer ownership to of a gun without having to go through background checks. Well, I think with inequities, I think what I would be approaching is say, for example, somebody wants to give their gun to their child, but in this scenario, their child might, might have a particularly strong mental illness, uh, maybe yeah, schizophrenia or something like that. Right. Yeah. But, but who's, but who's, but who's checking on that, you know, or even in this case with um, in Chicago with that, uh, the unfortunate killing of um, that 13 year old, you know, his situation with why he has a gun and how he accessed a gun is contextually different and requires different legislation and different types of political attention than why Jim Bob in Arkansas might have a gun, you know, and he might be particularly law abiding. But what I'm seeing now is an issue that is particularly intractable. You have on one side people saying, thoughts and prayers, and why should I, uh, a lawful gun owner who does the right thing, be punished because some schizo or some psychopath uh, does the wrong thing? And I think what's going on is that it's obfuscation. Too many times we've seen obfuscations of the correct argument, right? I, I think the correct argument is that most people, I think it's up to in the 90s, want universal background checks. So this person that I guess the, that to, to be honest, that you hear on Fox News that the Republicans are talking about this, I guess, typically Southern or rural white male who owns a gun and feels threatened might not even exist. <laughs> right. And so when we talk about inequities, there's also inequities in terms of the political dialogue, right? In terms of 
in terms of what is real and what is not real. We're 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 trying to balance the equation with people that don't even exist, with types of human beings that aren't even in any kind of reality that we're in. And I think it it, it creates a situation where um pundits pundits are able to have overdue power in the arguments about gun control. Uh, what do you think? What, what do you think, Tex? I mean, yeah, of course. Everybody should get a background check. Um, but, you know, once you... I don't know. It gets... It, it's deep. It gets it gets deep. It gets weird. It gets entangled. Like, the, the type of time that we're in right now um, is just interesting. Obviously, we're still going off of rules that was created, you know, centuries ago. Um, so, obviously, those need to be updated. Um, and But we can't update it. We can't even agree if the sky is blue or brown. I mean... <laughs> um, personally, I'm somebody who says take away all the guns. Okay, that's interesting. Um, and I, and I and now within that part, there's certain things that that will um, allow some people to have a gun. For instance, my grandmother owns a gun, and. It saved her life and saved the life of her child because she had an abusive husband and she had to shoot him. And um, he talked like this for the rest of his life. You know, she aimed at his chest and he ducked and he, she got him here. She lived at the end of a country road by herself until she was like 86 or 87 years old. So I was always happy she had that gun. Because if somebody came out the end of the road, we knew she knew how to use it. Uh, I grew up with uncles who were sheriffs who taught us how to use a gun, taught us how to clean a gun, how to maintain a gun, how to get honey, you know, all those things. But it was in a different type of setting, you know. Um, I'll never forget the first time I fired a gun. Bam! That, that rifle it, like, will shoot your arm back, and it hurts. You know, but so we had to learn how to learn how to stand with that. But it wasn't a machine gun. It wasn't an automatic gun. I mean, yeah, I learned how to shoot a revolver too. But it was all those things are different than in the context of somebody you walk in their house and they have fifty guns. Why do you need to have that many guns? Are you really that insecure? Oh well, I don't want the government coming and take my property. Yes, again, I'm going back to slavery. This is that whole context, the whole thing when people start talking about states' rights and they start talking about well, my property rights. It still keeps going back to, oh, when they came and they took our slaves once. Half of them never, the ancestors never even owned slaves, but that's the context of where they're coming from. So this whole idea of being able to have a gun and then saying the Second Amendment is protects them, their right to bear arms. The right to bear arms was the right to be, be able to create a militia to protect because we didn't have an army. And now we have the strongest and one of the most powerful militaries in the world. And yet we still have citizens who still feel as if they need to have a gun. That's based off of some insecurity and it's still based off and still goes back to this racial concept, construct that this country is built around. I have, I have two things to say. Um, all right, so what do you say to the person who doesn't own any guns but uh, is watching videos on, you know, these Trump hat wearers with M16s in their hands and bulletproof vests Saying like, get ready, it's coming. It's not over yet. It's not over yet. Um, and anybody who thinks that, and this is what I try to tell people 
during the election. If you think that this thing is going to be over just because of an election, you're you're, you're delusional. Delusional. Thank you. That's that's the word I was looking for. You're delusional. I'm not saying that people don't need to in this day and time because of what's going on and because of that other side needs uh, that needs to have that. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say that. Um, but I am going to say that if all of us are shooting each other, who's going to be left? Mm-hmm. And um, the reason why I continue using this term, elections have consequences, because we got to keep fighting. We're going to have to keep voting. You know, there are two big elections going on in New Jersey and Virginia this year um, for the governor's mansion and for, and for state legislature. We've got to vote in numbers too large to manipulate. We got to come back in 2022 where there's going to be a larger um, thing where every congressional member is going to be up for re-election, where there are going to be 20-some Senate seats that are going to be up for, for election. We got to vote in numbers again that are too large to manipulate. And doesn't mean that we're going to win back the state legislatures all, all of a sudden. It's going to take time. But we got to keep voting in numbers that are too large to manipulate. And what the other side is trying to do is not just suppress us, but to take away our hope. And that's why we have to keep coming back with messages of hope that if you want to get gun control, you got to go vote. If you want to make sure that we stop the George Floyd murders, you got to go out and vote. So if you have mayors who are, who are appointing police chiefs who are going to hold their police departments in check. If you want to get uh, a higher minimum wage, if you want to get reparations, any of these things you want to get, they don't happen when you sit at home and you don't vote. Elections have consequences. What do you? Well, I think the oh. Um, well, before I forget, I want to go back to the gun control with the army. So proven, you know, when we was doing the marches, you had Trump who sent the National Guard, right? So now you have the army who has all these guns, pointing them at the people. That's another scenario, just as far as like you know, getting rid of all of the guns because the military has them. You know, it, it's yeah. it's tough because like, how do I trust somebody who was pointing a gun at me for walking down the street? Voice, in my opinion, you gotta keep. Biggie, uh, in the song that he pulled from the movie Scarface, said, First, you get the money, then you get the power, then you get the respect. And I think we gotta come back with that street mentality. We gotta, like, figure out how we're putting our money together to support businesses despite the fact that what's going on in Georgia, for instance. we got to figure out how we're pooling our money together and getting people elected to office. We've got to not just have the power, we've got to maintain the power. It's like playing uh, King of the Hill. Like, you know, the person gets on top of the hill, everybody's coming trying to get that person off the hill. But we got to, like, figure out how we're going to maintain people, how we're going to keep the hill. And, in order to, and, and that means you want to make sure that you have a commander-in-chief Presidency, you want to make sure that you have the House and the Senate, you know, that you, that, that, and, the, and that when you have those things, then you can put somebody, first African American Secretary of Defense, then you can put people in housing and transportation positions. So you got to, like, the, 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 the message, if I was the head of the, of the DNC, I mean, Jamie, uh, you know, great things, you, you, you're, you're raising money, but what is the message? The message has to be one of hope. And what message has to be one that continues to tell the story of our successes. And successes have to be, we just won a national election that had historical numbers of people that came out. 
74 million people voted for the last president, but 81 million people voted for the winner. That was us. Keep saying that over and over again. Keep giving that message of hope. We didn't win any state legislatures. We didn't flip any houses or Senate on the state level. But guess what? We won the Senate. Look at what we did in Georgia. We flipped it. We turned, excuse my language, we turned that motherfucker blue. And, and I'm saying that because there was a song that was a part of like a cartoon that was part of like a campaign ad that was going around like social media that was about, we got to turn this motherfucker blue. And it had um, uh, people that looked like they were Muslim and women and black and Hispanic and white. That's what it takes. You got to come up with messages that meet people where they are. Stop trying to like come up with a message that works for you. You got to take the message to where people are and give them that hope. And at the same time, tell them the stories. This is what we did. It's, it's no different than, you know, if you're in a football, if you're ready to go out on a football field or baseball or to win a championship. The coach, coaches are known for giving uplifting speeches. Why? Because you got to go put it out on the line. And in order to win those games, you got to pull on something that you don't even know that you have in you. That's what makes a great player. And great coaches are the ones who are able to pull something out of those players that they don't even know is in them. That's what we have to do right now in terms of we've got to figure out how we're going to, we didn't, we, we have a little bit of power. How are we going to get more power? How are we going to keep the power? That's what the Republicans are, are worried about. Have you seen the movie uh, One Night in Miami? Of course. What I loved about that movie was the four unique perspectives on what black people need to do to attain whatever they want, right? Mm -hmm. For Malcolm X, that was a vision of a world where they are empowered um, and their equality is not determined by anyone else but themselves. But then you also had uh, the opinion of Sam Cooke, right? Sam Cooke talks about economic power. And even though they were called, they, they were insinuating that he is somewhat of a, a sellout because he doesn't make political music, he's the only one who was employing black people. He owned his masters. And he's the only one who had, had control over his masters, mm-hmm. right? And he was like, in a drop of a hat, I can write a song and I can give it to one of my associates. And that song will be played by the Beatles, and my associate will make ninety thousand dollars easily. Mm-hmm. Can you do that, right? And yeah, I just, uh, I just remember Muhammad Ali, um, not in the movie, but he says this quote, and I say this as a compliment, not and, and as somebody of Jewish descent on my on my father and my mother's side. That Muhammad Ali said this. He said they wouldn't let Jewish people on Miami Beach for the longest time. So what did Jewish people do in Miami? Well, did they protest? Did they did they march about it? Did they destroy buildings about it? No. They got their money together, and now they own Miami Beach. Mm-hmm. And so the right way to do things is just as important as having the right amount of people to do something, too. And I think the vote is such an impactful way to do that. We've shown that. But we have to come out, whether you're white or black, whatever side you're on, if you believe in something and if you believe in, in, in the, that there are inequities in society, you have to vote in your legislature. You have to vote at the state level. You have to vote at a local level because that's really what determines policy in your area. 
Well, you know that gets lost, especially like for for young people, because you know those are the votes that really push it through the top. Is that it's not there's no media that's talking to them about that, right? Like all the media outlets that they listen to, they're not they're not promoting. Oh, go vote for your legislative. Go vote for um, uh, I don't know. Help me out, guys. These other these other little not little but major things that's not. Uh, yeah, your assemblyman, your assemblyman, your judges. Right. And- that's not promoted like, you know, the presidential election is. Um, once there's a presidential election, that's on all media platforms. So and I think it has a lot to do with community too. Um, community and, and uh, mental health, uh, you know, just for the the individuals of your community. Because we can say, yo, let's get all the people we want together. But if these are not healthy people, then it's not going to really matter long term. Because they'll be carrying out the same acts that they was doing under whatever policies that was still destroying their communities. So we like we have to really focus on um, being the best versions of ourselves and for the people around us. It's true, but I think that you know I'm gonna keep going back to this idea. I think uh, we started we started off Justin asking me about the insurrection. That was a lot of fear, right? When you think about the protests that happened after George Floyd, that was a lot of frustration. Mm. Not neither one of them provided a message of hope. Mm. And I think that, that that's that's the dream. That's the American dream. The American dream has always been about hope. And it's been built around this idea of love for country. But how am I supposed to love this country? That's where, and that's where I took from um, uh, when I in Miami. Was here you had these four black men who were finding different ways to try to achieve some sense of hope that America was for them too. Here you had Ali who, who was known or believed to have thrown his gold medal into a river after being denied to be able to eat in a restaurant after he had just gone to fight for his country. But think about all the other people. Think about my grandfather who served in World War II, who went, he, his brother Hampton and his, his uh, sister Millie, all three served in World, during World War II. And here they go to, to Europe to help to liberate Jewish people and to liberate Europe and my grandfather would tell stories about how these white kids would run behind them and look at their tails, the black men's tails, because they were told that they had, a t- they had they were monkeys, that they had tails. And they were looking like these black people that they had never seen, like looking for the tail. Not only was that dehumanizing, but how does that feel? I put on this uniform, I'm wearing this flag. Where is my message of hope? My grandfather was an incredible baseball player. And he never was able to play professionally. People have said to me for years, like, your grandfather, had he been born now, had the skills he had, would have been a baseball player. All these things now that we see today are, you keep seeing, like, the press, it's like fear. You keep seeing the frustration. But what we have been looking for, my grandfather, my uncle Hampton, my aunt Millie, they went to serve in the military, they came home, what? They were hopeful that, hey, we just went and defended our country. We just went and fought for democracy. Yet, they came back home. There was no democracy for them. There was no hope for them. That fear and that frustration that they had to have felt then is no different than what people, black and white, are feeling today. 
And so we've got to figure out what are those messages of hope that are something that can be unifying for the whole nation. They can get us back to loving this nation, but we can't get there with hope and fear. And yeah. I, I, I mean, sorry, fear and frustration. I don't want to say get back because it was never, it was never to ever get back to anything for America. Um, yeah, we gotta get, we gotta get to it. Um, but just to just to even emphasize on the point. With the uh, with the the uh, sergeant who was at the airport that the police pointed guns at. Yeah, you know, like that's that's if anybody doesn't know what uh, we're talking about as far as uh, Muhammad Ali and grandfathers going through, the, just look at that video, and that's today. Um, yeah. So yes. Yeah, yeah. so, but, but go ahead. I was just going to just it's a false hope, you know, like even with Instagram. And social media, you got these little kids looking up to these um, false idols, you know, selling them, a, selling them a false reality, and it's perpetrating this this lifestyle that's just not that just doesn't equate to what, what is actually going on, and then it just sells us short. Well, we also have to stop thinking that by putting on a new pair of shoes or buying something that helps somebody else be able to live their life in a yacht or a mansion is going to change our condition. So we got to change first the condition of our heart and we want to change the condition of our, of our lives. And we got to figure out how to do so. You know, some people say, for instance, I remember Trayvon Martin passed, um, was killed, murdered that, oh, well, he had been wearing a hoodie, you know, such and such. And then, I, you know, there's a discussion where he should be able to wear whatever he want. Should. And so should other young kids. I mean, you look at Mike Brown, you look at um, Ahmed Arbery, you look at Breonna Taylor, who's in a home. I mean, you can't be in your own right. freaking home. Where can you be? Um, but we got to also figure out some more strategic ways to fight back. Um, I'm never going to be one that's going to say on, on, on one of these platforms to resort to violence. But I do, you know, you mentioned and, um, when I'm in Miami, people get, well, I've noticed, and I've even had people say this about my own podcast, that we had a clip in there from, Muhammad, from Malcolm X saying, by any means necessary. And I had some white folk come back saying that, um, well, you know, that's a little too much for us. Well, it seems to be okay when you use your any means necessary, but when we come back and want to fight back, so going back to your gun thing, Justin, when they talk about guns and gun control, let's go back to slavery where, or after slavery, where we were not supposed to be able to own guns. Why were we supposed to be able to own guns? Because their fear that we might mm -hmm. shoot them for coming to attack mm -hmm. us. So all these things keep coming back to this systemic issue of policy that's been put in place that is inequitable and it's always been put in place so it allows them to be able to put their knees on our neck. And so if we want to change that narrative, we've got to stay in power. We've got to fight for the power. We've got to find out ways to be putting together our money. We've got to get the power because respect is not something all of a sudden you're going to get. It's earned. And it's going to take fighting back like on that gridiron, like on that football field, like on that basketball court. When you're going out there and, you know, you think about Jackie Robinson getting spit on, getting cleats in his 
leg, you know, all things. He had to fight to overcome in order that other black people could come along who weren't allowed to come, like my grandfather. That he went through a great deal of sacrifice in order to open that door. And when people say, oh, well, Major League Baseball should not have left Georgia, baseball is still one of the most racist sports in this country. If you don't believe, find out how many, look at how many African-Americans are on baseball teams, how many African-Americans are in coaching positions or managerial positions, let alone how many of them are executives. Yeah, executives or owners. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. When I go to the top, right? I think I think that will come. I think there will be. Uh, I think there is an awareness from black athletes with means that hey, you know there there is a responsibility for you to one day become an exec, become an owner, become a GM, stay involved. Don't just retire and and go off into oblivion. You know, live in Indiana or South Dakota or something like that. Come back, contribute to the game. These games make it easier for someone else coming from behind you. I think I think I think I see that in some athletes, um, but I, I I do think that you know my father worked on Wall Street and his idea was mobilization. You have to be able to mobilize, and th- that works in two ways: that you can mobilize people for efforts, and you can mobilize money, right? And that you can shift your class dynamic through education. That you, if you get your education. You play the play the game the right way, right? And you get your money, and then you contribute, and then you keep that ball rolling for the next generation, right? Easier said than done. But pooling capital together is really the only way that people listen. You know, the reason why CNN covers uh, all these shootings in a way that Fox News does not is because that it makes CNN money that way. But that's okay if 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 the message is still getting out. If we can if if CNN is manipulating us, then we can manipulate CNN as well. And so I, I think, hopefully, I'm hopeful that in the next fifty years, as America becomes more black and brown, it becomes more of an equitable place. People who have power, if you want to say that's white society, I see that adjusting. And I see that adjusting to black and brown people, not just because of compassion, but because of capital, but because there is an incentive on both sides to make that leap and make that jump. Just like, you know, it's like picking up a new book, right? What is the incentive of the author to write the book? What is the incentive of the person to pick up that book and 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 and, and read it? And the two come together and that creates the synergy that we need. Uh, but speaking of a new book, our guest actually has a book out, and I would like him to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, thank you. Um, so since I was a kid, I always wanted to write a book. I, my parents, uh, my father's job took us to the overseas. I read like 400 some books in two years, and well, we didn't have television. So you know, I was reading Hardy Boys and all this stuff, and Years ago, I read a um, J.K. Rowling book, Harry Potter, and I thought, oh, let me finally take a stab at writing a book. So it took me 20 years to actually let it go. I wrote a book called State of Race, which is a political thriller uh, about an environmental attorney who has been uh, kidnapped. And when the story starts off, he doesn't know exactly what's happening. Um, and it's massive love story. And um, with the whole premise and idea that you never 
what you see with politics is never what actually is. And so uh, if uh, your audience uh, would like to know more about the book, they can go to my website, Atiba, A-T-I-B as in boy, A, my last name, Matt Jim, M-A-D-Y-U-N.com. So it's AtibaMattJim.com. Um, and uh, if they purchase a book there, I'm happy to sign it and put it in the mail. Sure. And what, and what is the name of the book again, one more time? Saving Grace. Saving Grace. Okay. Saving Grace by Tiba. Yeah, yeah. The, um, the, uh, the main character's name is Anthony Grace, and the whole idea is about how he saved. And um, ironically, it took me 20 years to write the first one. It took me one month to write the second mm-hmm. novel in the series. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that's what happened to get quarantined. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like you just have that, 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 Boost. that middle-aged <laughs> strength. <laughs> that resolve of being, you know, at, it's like you're not 25 anymore. You gotta, uh, you got that grit. <laughs> yeah, I think the other part of it too, though, is once you've done something the first time, you know, often I hear people say, oh, I would have or I could have done this, but it didn't. Um, the hard part is doing it the first time. Once you get to do it the first time, um, the second time is, is easier. So having writing the second manuscript was not nearly as difficult as the first one. And you said that book is available. Uh, is it available on Amazon? Or? You can find it on Amazon. It's Saving Grace by Atiba. Or you can find it, or you can go on my website, atibamagic.com. Great, great. And what inspired you to write a political thriller? So I, I started my career off working in an environmental um, field. So he's an environmental attorney. And I wanted to write something that had to do with social injustice. Um, I also wanted to do something that would. It, it, it took a great deal of research to be able to educate people on stuff, and as well as something that was just like a fun read. Uh, and I wanted to take a stab at it and see if I could do it. Thankfully, everyone who's read it, who I've gotten feedback with, has all said, this reads like a movie. Um, most people who have started reading it have told me, and I've gotten texts from friends late at night saying, oh my gosh, I can't put this down, but i got to go to bed, and who've read it in two or three days. As well as people who have asked me, is any part of the book real? And right. <laughs> telling me that, um, say, you know, you were really studying what was going on when you were working with us. Um, so it, it, it really does encompass, it's not anything that ever happened to me. It does encompass um, the idea of like things that really do happen within politics. And when I say that what we see often in television or reading media, um, is not always what is. And so that's the way that I try to write it to hopefully give people that uh, that perception, that idea that everything is not what it seems. Wow. Do your research. Please do your research. There you go. I work in media. So like, even when I watch the news, I, I look at it with, you know, two or three eyes because I'm like, ah, they can, you know, they, they take bits, they clip it up and they just put things together. Um, but for our listeners, National Black Caucus, uh, what's the full uh, state legislature? National Black Caucus of State Legislators. Um, I think it's very important because you get to uh, maybe a Tiba can elaborate some more, but you get to find out who looks like you is running for these for these positions um, in these places, and I think that's representation is everything. Um, and yes, we are a melting pot of a society, and that's what makes America, and that's great and everything. Um, but, you know, as being brown, black, African-American, um, we need to make sure that we have people that represent us um, 
to the to the fullest capacity because it's it's important. It's, it's important for young kids to to see even a principal in their school that looks like them to have a teacher in their school that looks like them. Um, it's, it's just what we need. We need to do better. I mean, we're doing a great job, but we need to do better. We need to come together and we need to start having more of these dialogues, whether we disagree or agree, um, just to get to a, a point where, uh, and actually a team, I would say to go, we can go back to, a time before the uh, civil rights, when we was owning our own businesses and employing our own people. Yeah, during segre- segregation. During before, segregation. Yeah, before segregation. Before it. Like before civil rights, oh, okay. we, we, went, we had our own schools, we had our own doctors, we had our own markets, we had our own communities, and we was the money stayed in our in our sector. Right? Because with civil rights... Are you talking about like, talking about like Tulsa? Yeah, but even, even... Tulsa was just one, right? Like yeah, yeah, that yeah. just happened to bomb, but yeah, once civil rights happened, like we lost all that. We didn't. There was no more funding. There was no reason for black kids to attend a black school because they're going to a white to to a white school to a segregated school. Right. Well, I mean, there's different opinions about it, right? I mean, that that is one way to go about it. But some of the some of the most academically successful times in this country statistically have come when there was more integration. Right. It's just that now we have less integration. There was a decision made, one of the last decisions made um, by the court that had Thurgood Marshall on it, to his dismay, was a decision on busing. And it was to no longer mandate certain busing policies for bringing uh, kids from black and brown areas to white schools. So now schools and public schools, not even talking about private schools, but public schools are more segregated now than they were during the Jim Crow era during the civil rights era. So what I think we also need is we need white people to understand that all sides have to put in some work here and don't feel like, don't let anyone tell you that laziness or tell you that not getting involved is the correct disposition. It's okay if you learn about the history of what the English did and what the French did and what the Dutch did during colonialism and say, you know what, that makes me feel bad. Don't let somebody tell you, oh, no, you shouldn't feel bad about that. I would feel bad about that if my ancestors did that. And I am part white. Right. So if you feel bad about those things, let that galvanize you to go and get into dialogue with black and brown people. Go out and join causes because we all have to put in this work. Obviously, obviously, when we talk about um, um, how best to do this, we can talk about ways and say how do we can support our own. And, but but we are past that. We're not going to go back to segregation era. We're never going to go back to pre-civil rights era with segregation. I don't think so. I hope not. So um, I think. I think uh, that's my opinion on it. You know, that's my two cents. No, no, I, I agree. Like, I agree. There's, there's, there's no reason for segregation at all. But, you know, we do need to focus on our ourselves. Yeah. As, because we're just, we're just, you know, we're, we're off. We're, we're a little bit, we're behind. Yeah. I think we, we are behind. I think we have to do more. I don't want to say better. I think we have to do more of telling our story. I think we have to do more humanizing our story. Um, you know, quick story, my great-great-grandfather's name was William Pascal Russell. 
His wife's name was Isabella Russell. And the two of them, along with four other people in the state of North Carolina, built the first black Episcopal church in the state of North Carolina. Now, in order to become Episcopal, they had to first, um, they had to first, uh, they had to wait for a white man to come to their church in order to become Episcopal, right? They built the church before. And my great-great-grandfather was a slave. He and Isabel, and their first son, Plummer. They were, they were slaves. They lived on a plantation. It turns out in my family, that name Pascal is on my grandmother's side, my father's mother, and my grandfather's side, which meant that somewhere along the line, there was a slave master, a slave owner, that slept with both sides mm. that, that way. That's the American experiment. That's the American slavery in this country. Now, William and Isabella acquired land as ex-slaves, and that land is still in my family. And so I think we have to keep telling those stories, and we yeah. have to tell those stories in a way that make people go, oh, wait, 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 you know? They came from slavery, and they still have that. I know where my great-great-grandparents are buried. I know where their daughter, Susanna, and her husband, Robert, are buried, and their children. And it's all next to my great-grandparents' home that's in North Carolina that's still in my family. And to mm -hmm. me, it's telling those stories and humanizing those type of things that make the story of who we are in this country one of resilience, and it gives people hope to say, well, yes, we can do it. You know, people talk about Obama and his yes, we can thing. Yes, we can is that yes, we did. Yes, we have. Yes, we will. Mm -hmm. And we have, to, we have to keep telling. Each one of us has a story. We have stories of triumph. We have stories of tragedy. We have to keep telling those stories. All right. Well, I think that's a great place to, to end up and a great place to let our audience kind of decompress and reflect on this episode. I think we went through a lot of things that were quite mind-opening for both. I know for me and, and my co-host, I want to thank my guests for all this insight and especially saying, yes, we did. You know, we are as much a part of the fabric of the American story as any other people. We've been here since the 17th century. We have been, we, we have been free blacks. There have been enslaved blacks since the 18th century. Yes, we did is a great way to put it. So any last words from my guest or from my co-host? I will say I'll leave you all with on my mom's side of the family, my great-grandmother, um, three quick um, quotes. One is, um, good, better, best, never let it rest until your good is better and your better is best. <laughs> was um, one step at a time. And I think that that's one of the things we have to keep remembering as we do this elections part. Is that one step at a time, and that done well, is a very good thing, as many can tell. And the last one is, it's a good thing to remember, but a better thing to do. Always hang with the construction gang and not the wrecking crew. And that was my great-grandmother, Georgiana Campbell. She used to tell us those type of quotes all the time. So I think that those, that's, that those quotes for me... I would have bought her album. I would have bought her album. <laughs> she better, some dope she basically said to build and destroy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can I one more question? And this is for I'm sure as much as myself as the listeners. 
where can we stay updated with what elections are coming up? Uh, let's go. I would, I would just say, um, uh, I wish I could tell you to go to our website, but we don't have the information up yet. But I'll tell you what, why don't I give you all my email address, Atifa, A-T-I, Gizzard Boy A, at partypoliticsus.com. And if you email me, I'll send you, send whoever emails me um, a link um, that, that will have it. I know ncsl.org, they often have um, information like that up too, but uh, I'll do my own research and I'll happy to get that information. And I can also give it to you all too, so you can have another website. Awesome. All right. All right. Awesome. So thank you so much, Atiba. Thank you, Tex. And from The Trend with Justin A. Williams, I want to say thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. And again, remember that to like, subscribe. We are on Apple Podcasts now. Uh, we are on Spotify. We are everywhere podcasts are pretty much found. And please remember, too, that we drop an episode twice a month at the end of the month. So again, thank you so much. We'll see you around.